0: Hello, everyone. I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. In this episode, we conclude a two-part series on the life and times of Andrew Johnson. In this episode, we take a look at his military governorship of Tennessee, short vice presidency, ascension to the presidency, impeachment, and impeachment trial in the Senate.
1: Hello, this is Richard Lummis, and I'm here with Tom Fox for another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. In these discussions, we draw, we hope, for interesting examples from our own experiences, history, business, literature, and politics, to examine what constitutes good leadership and extract lessons we can use to improve our own leadership skills. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Today, we're going to continue our discussion of Andrew Johnson, the 17th president. First part of our discussion covered his early years up until the beginning of the recent unpleasantness, as my history teacher used to refer to the War of Northern Aggression. Um, So, Tom, Andrew Johnson was a sitting senator from Tennessee as the war started. And what happened then?
0: So, Richard, he was the only Southern senator to stay with the Union after succession. And interestingly this gave him a position of some influence with the incoming president. Um, once again, not something that I was really aware of, but uh, he had Lincoln's ear and uh, probably this was one of the key reasons that Lincoln selected him uh, to be his vice presidential candidate in 1864. Um, but uh, Johnson could not live in Tennessee because they had succeeded succeeded. And his uh, life had been threatened. So he lived uh, across the border in Tennessee, excuse me, uh, across the border from Tennessee and Kentucky when he um, was a senator. But he was a senator for uh, about a year uh, in um, the Civil War Congress. Once again, his key legislative goal was to pass uh, the Homestead Act. which uh, passed after he left the Senate to become military governor of Tennessee. In, in retrospect, and probably at the time, um, the appointment made a lot of sense. He was the only senator uh, to stick with the union. He was from Tennessee. He was from East Tennessee. East Tennessee was really a hotbed of pro-union and pro-federal sentiment, uh, although the state of Tennessee seceded Uh, That part of Tennessee really never lost its uh, pro-Union political positions and uh, stances. And uh, when Tennessee was conquered relatively early in the war, uh, or at least uh, invaded and subdued somewhat relatively early in the war, Lincoln appointed him in 1862, early 1862, to be the military governor of Tennessee And here, once again, I was unaware of his record as military governor, and there were some contradictions in his record and what my views of him were. Um, We saw a couple of things that I thought really um, uh, expanded and exploded on him later. The first one, he was against uh, freed slaves or freedmen uh, being given the franchise, And that's something we saw play out with really devastating results when he gets to Washington and assumes the presidency. Uh, We also saw him initially against recruitment of blacks to become federal troops. Uh, He did modify that position. And I think between 20 and 30,000 blacks were recruited out of Tennessee to join the federal army. Not an insignificant uh, number of uh, troops uh, to be committed uh, from one state and certainly, uh, assisted the North in its overall manpower, uh, in this war. Uh, he didn't believe they should be frontline troops. They clearly, uh, proved their worth in later battles. Nevertheless, um, his position on that modified. And so I saw some ability to, uh, if not agree with uh, a contrary position, modify his own position uh, in a way that helped the overall war effort. So, um, I thought that was significant. He uh, demanded loyalty oaths uh, beyond what was required from the federal government for early reconstructed Southerners. So um, this, uh, at the end of uh, the last podcast, you talked about his stubbornness, and this seemed to be an issue he was particularly stubborn on. What I couldn't quite figure out, Richard, was this a issue related to the rebellion, or was this residual class resentment? Because the people who were uh, he was demanding loyalty oaths from typically were planters or others of, uh, if not a higher aristocratic level, certainly a more genteel uh, level of person than he had been growing up. Although he had been a politician by this point for over twenty years, um, so I would hope he would have overcome his class, uh, if not conflicts, uh, his views on class and class hierarchy in America. So uh, some interesting parts of um, his military governorship, some that I thought uh, spoke well of him and some that I think presage some of the conflicts we saw or we will talk about when he gets to Washington. But overall, as the first military governor, of a southern state, I, I would say, on the whole, positive more than negative.
1: Um, I agree, and on on a personal note, he um, he actually freed his own slaves in in August of eighteen sixty three. Um, the Emancipation Proclamation, of course, had been issued in in January of that year, but it didn't apply uh, outside of uh, the areas controlled by the Confederacy. So, in theory, he could have kept his slaves, but. Um, at this point, by this point, he seems to have turned fairly resolutely against slavery as an institution. Um, and um, but I, I think you're right. I think there are definite class overtones. I think his, his hatred of the planter class was was something that had probably extended throughout his entire life. Um, but so in the election of 1864, um I think one of the things we forget is how divided the union was at this time. Um, And so uh, Lincoln's vice president for his first term, uh, Hannibal Hamlin from Maine, um, somehow got replaced by Andrew Johnson on the ticket. And the details, as one uh, biographer says, are sketchy as to how this happened. Um, But this is a biographer who is quite hostile to him in general. And I think he maybe not the obvious VP candidate, but he was an excellent uh, choice by Lincoln, um, and Lincoln was a brilliant politician and tactician. We think of him more as a statesman, but but he was quite a good politician as well. And Johnson, because of his uh, principled stance in supporting the Union, uh, was a darling in much of the Northern press, a lot of which was not very uh, favorable towards Lincoln. Um, Hamlin himself had been fiercely anti-slavery. He was a proponent of the Wilmot Proviso, which we discussed in the prior podcast about uh, uh, banning slavery from any territories uh, acquired in the Mexican War. Uh, he was an opponent of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, um, and as Lincoln was trying to field his way forward, the defeat of the South was pretty much certain at this point. And so the real question was how to reconstruct the Union and reconcile the, uh, the North and the South. And the selection of Johnson sent a message about the, uh, the folly of the secessions and the continuing capacity for unity uh, inside the country. Um, one of the things I forgot about was that Lincoln ran under the banner of the National Union Party. Because the Republican Party had split and actually nominated John C. Fremont as its candidate, and the Democratic candidate George McClellan, the general Lincoln had sacked, had a running mate named George Pendleton from Ohio, who was a Copperhead Democrat, who favored making peace with the Confederacy. Um. So in in a. In a sense, Johnson really was an excellent choice uh, as vice president. He also uh, was a very energetic campaigner. You and I briefly discussed the the issue of travel at this point because um, the railroads were still fairly much in their inf- infancy and touring the country was quite difficult. But uh, during the campaign, Johnson traveled throughout the country making... Proud, pleasing, and provocative speeches, which he mercilessly condemned the rebels and the act of secession, and he even began to criticize the uh, institution of slavery itself, using a number of, of tacks: the uh, the mixing of races, the uh, the class hatred of the slaveocracy, as he pointed, it, as he called it. And the, just the poisonous effect it had on the union for the previous sixty years. Um, we mentioned in the first half of this podcast that he, uh, um, his first book was the American Speaker, and he was always a very uh, strong and emotional speaker, and he he really showed it during this campaign. Um, and of course, he and Lincoln won, and. Um, that brings us to the debacle of his swearing in. Uh, he almost didn't attend the inauguration um, because Tennessee had uh, had recently uh, opened its constitutional convention to come up with a post-Civil War uh, uh, constitution. And he thought that that was important, but he was eventually persuaded to go to Washington. Um, some Historians have claimed he had typhoid fever, uh, but he had actually gone out the night before the inauguration to have a number of drinks with friends, which doesn't seem like the type of thing to do. Um, Also on his way, he stopped off to uh, talk to the vice president, Hannibal Hamlin, who apparently gave him several glasses of whiskey, uh, which some of Johnson's defenders claim was an attempt to sabotage him. But anyway, at the inauguration, he was obviously drunk, um, babbled on and on, uh, didn't remember the names of the cabinet uh, secretaries, and ended by picking up the Bible uh, and saying, I kissed this book in the face of my nation of the United States. And the, one of the onlookers said that Lincoln just looked terribly sad. Um, and of course, his speech was then followed by Lincoln's second inaugural address, so it looks even worse. In in retrospect, um, he was savaged in the press uh, for it. He was called a drunken bore and a low sot, and to a certain extent, this must have really hurt him because um, he was he was so sensitive about his social class, and um, and he had revealed himself to be you know, of the lower class uh, in a lot of people's eyes. Lincoln. Was apparently one of the ones who was not terribly perturbed by this. He said, uh, "I've known Andy Johnson for many years. He made a bad slip the other day, but you need not be scared. Andy ain't a drunkard." Um, that may have been right at the time, but it, it certainly became a problem. Became an issue later on in his uh, in his career. So after Lincoln's assassination, everything seemed to fall apart. So what do you think about that, Tom? Um, among other things, Ms. Lincoln despised him, although I'm not sure why.
0: So, uh, first of all, apparently he didn't meet up with the president until the day of Lincoln's assassination. Um, and he, uh, Lincoln clearly knew him. They had served in Congress together uh, Johnson had been a senator during Lincoln's first term as president, but um, in trying to to assess not meeting with Lincoln as president and vice president, um, first we have to recall that in 1865, Inauguration Day was March 4, not uh, January 21 or the, the first Monday after the third Sunday. Um, so it was uh, much later. That made uh, the time between Lincoln's Second inaugural address, Johnson's drunken debacle and Lincoln's assassination, I think about five weeks. So a relatively short time. And I think the hangover, no pun intended, from his uh, inaugural address debacle, uh, w- since it was much closer in time, people were focusing on that more. And um, obviously, Franklin Roosevelt was criticized heavily for never telling Harry. Truman about the existence of the A-bomb, I wonder if Lincoln shared his vision of a reconstructed South with Johnson. And if they had, perhaps that would have um, given Johnson pause for some of the actions he took uh, on assuming presidency. The first big issue was, this was a Congress that constituted the states who had not gone into rebellion, meaning the north and the border states. The southern states were not seated yet in Congress, and that became an early contentious issue. Because the states that remained in Congress were largely abolitionists, uh, either before the war or after uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, and I say largely, not 100%, there was a movement in Congress to uh, not only keep blacks free, but give them the franchise. And this seemed to, uh, I don't know what your reading and research may have shown Richard, but this seemed to be the biggest sticking point because he did not in any way support the franchise for newly freedmen and in the civil rights act of 1866. So um, that was really the first thing that occurred politically where uh, he seemed to take uh, uh, perhaps it was that stubbornness perhaps it was uh, truly a difference in political philosophy perhaps it was a class issue or perhaps he just realized he was in way over his head and the only way he could deal with it was through a bottle Um, uh, he uh, vetoed the Civil Rights Act of 1866 this infuriated Congress Um, and the next year in uh, 1867 there was a call for him to give a speech on Washington's birthday and um, if you've ever seen the John Ford trilogies of uh, western movies in Fort Apache you you understand what a big deal George Washington's birthday was. Uh, A new commander Henry Ford shows up and the men are in dress uniform and Uh, He said, what are you doing uh, with your wives? He said, well, it's a birthday party, sir. And he goes, well, for who? George Washington. And uh, I really think that I've stuck, obviously, uh, taking a moment out of time from Hollywood. But that's how people thought of George Washington. The whole country celebrated his birthday in a way that we don't anymore. We may get a federal day off for President's Day, but we don't sit down and really have a party anymore. And. At any rate, he was uh, asked to give some remarks. And it's not clear whether he was sober or not, but these remarks were even more disastrous than his inauguration speech. Let me see if I can even uh, pull these up. The remarks uh, basically called the radical Republicans traitors, And he called them out uh, by name. And he called out uh, Thaddeus Stevens. He called out um, the uh, leader of the Senate and um, a couple of others and said that they were now in open rebellion uh, against the United States. So um, this was essentially a declaration of war against the... um, radical Republicans. And this was not a war that Johnson was equipped to win. Interestingly, early on in um, after uh, when the first term of Congress after Lincoln's assassination, there was still amount of goodwill. And uh, they probably could have um, reached uh, an accommodation on many of these but for whatever reason, uh, Johnson, uh, that stubborn streak uh, pulled up and he um, uh, refused uh, to work with Congress on the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which of course led, the, led them to uh, passing the bill they wanted, which was antithetical to his views. So with the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1866, with the Washington's birthday speech where he named Thaddeus Stevens, Charles Sumner, and Wendell Phillips, as uh, uh, in rebellion against the United States, accusing them of plotting his assassination, um, this uh, really probably, at that point, impeachment was uh, down the road at some point. We also had, uh, because of his veto of the Civil Rights Act and the southern states um, basically showing up, Um, to come into Congress, uh, Congress wouldn't seat them. And that led, uh, all of this was going on when the 14th Amendment was then proposed. We'd had the 13th Amendment passed outlawing slavery, but now the 14th Amendment extending uh, federal law into the states in a way that had never been done before and granting citizenship uh, to those native-born to the United States, whether in in bondage or free at the time of their uh, birth. So um, he uh, tried to veto the 14th Amendment, Congress overrode that veto, and then, then it became, it had to go to the states. Now, once again, we're in the situation where there are only northern and border states um, in, uh, seated in Congress because southern states couldn't vote, it was assumed it would pass, but it didn't pass the states the first time around. Uh, because several of the border states uh, did not vote to ratify it, so what the radical Republicans did may, was to make uh, ratification of the Fourteenth Amendment by Southern states the uh, a condition of reinstatement to to uh, full rights of the United States. The last thing was uh, the Reconstruction Act, because the radical Republicans were so incensed at the Southern. Uh, the same southern elite showed up after the war to take retake their seats in Congress. Uh, they re- <coughs> set up the Reconstruction Act. They divided the South into military districts, and this phase of uh, Reconstruction began, uh, which further infuriated uh, Johnson. So <coughs> relations are very bad. I know you're going to talk about the Tenure of Office Act, but uh, it it seemed like. Uh, just really any spark, uh, would set this off. And, uh, we've seen sparks before, uh, between Sparta and Athens. There were s- insignificant sparks between Rome and Carthage. Um, uh, y- you really name the, the historical precedent. Uh, it was really a, a meaningless spark which set this off and perhaps a tenure of office act was more important. Uh, I didn't think it was particularly an important act. Nevertheless, I know you're going to talk about it. So, um, We've got the stage set where things are very, very, very bad between the two. How do we get from radical reconstruction to impeachment?
1: Well, yeah, there, there are a couple of things that um, I want to point out as well that, you, you, that go to your discussion. Between Lincoln's assassination in December of 1865, Congress was not in session. And so Johnson used his executive power to— uh, basically permit the Confederate States to come back into the Union. He actually took the legal position that they'd never left, um, that because secession was illegal and unconstitutional, that they'd never gone away. So they had a right to uh, go into Congress. So when Congress refused to seat them, that was a direct attack on his executive authority. and it also went to the point of who, could, who would control the readmission of the Confederate states. If they had, in fact, seceded, then it was up to Congress to readmit them as states. Um, but if they had never left, then it all became a matter for, for the executive. So I think that had a lot to do with, with the struggle um, that Johnson may have just felt you know, totally disrespected by the, by the radical Republicans. Um, The issue of black suffrage, of course, really uh, alienated him. But Lincoln's plans for Reconstruction remain vague. Um, We don't really understand what they would have been uh, had he survived. He initially had proposed a a very lenient plan for readmission that didn't include a requirement for for black suffrage. Um, Whether he would have stuck to that position, I personally doubt it. But uh, anyway, I think Johnson and his defenders would be able to, to claim that that was not part of Lincoln's plan and use you know, the martyred Lincoln's reputation to support their, their position. Um, and then there was the issue of land, land reform, whether um, the federal government could confiscate the land from uh, rebels. And, uh, and then redistribute it to the freedmen, um, as the radicals saw it. Um, And there are, of course, constitutional issues with that as well. But you're right, the Tenure of Office Act was trivial. Um, it required that Congress consent to the removal of any official who'd been appointed by a previous president with congressional consent. Um, it became an issue because Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, who had opposed Johnson's policies all along and favored the radical uh, Republicans' Reconstruction plans, um, refused to resign. Uh, there was a question, there's a technical question as to whether the act even applied to him. But Johnson initially followed the process of the tenure of Office act and sought Senate approval for his removal, which the Senate denied. Um, and so he fired him anyway. Of the nine articles of impeachment brought against uh, Johnson, eight of them had to do with the dismissal of Stanton, and this was probably a huge mistake on the Republicans' part. Uh, It basically doomed the impeachment effort. Uh, The ninth one is apparently uh, about bringing Congress into ill repute, which uh, certainly they've done nothing lately to, uh, to bring themselves out of that. Um, the trial itself was was fairly um, uneventful. I mean, it's you know, there's all this drama about he survived by a vote, but there was really not a lot of enthusiasm for removing him. Uh, he had less than a year in office at the time. Um, he had a pretty good legal case about the tenure of office act. Um, He apparently also cut a lot of deals with senators that he would not interfere with their efforts uh, for Reconstruction during the remainder of his term. And he would have been replaced by the president pro tem of the Senate, uh, Benjamin Wade, who was a radical among the radicals. He even held positions favoring women's suffrage and labor unions, if you could believe such a thing. Um, So anyway, he would have been the president, and I think that scared a lot of people. And uh, so he, uh, he beat, he he escaped conviction by a single vote. Uh, I thought that that meant that only one Republican had defected. In fact, I think six defected. Um, But it was a margin of one vote um, that saved him from conviction. Um, And then the rest of his tenure of office was pretty much, been
0: remarkable So, leadership lessons. Um, We explored Johnson's character in episode one, and if you haven't listened to that, I hope you'll go back and do so, because we found a lot that we thought really either explained or led to an explanation of of what happened. But um, the character defects that he had did not seem to have really negatively impacted his political career up to the end of episode one. How convenient. Um, But we saw them come to the fore, particularly as he moved to Washington and ascended to the vice presidency. Because I now know of his 20 year political career in Washington before he became vice president and then president, um, I'd originally thought he was just completely in over his head when he went to Washington. Well, it was not going to Washington that it was over his head. It was dealing with Congress as an alleged equal or what he thought was an equal or perhaps even above that. And I guess if we try to draw a leadership lesson, Richard, uh, one of them might be that you have to – leaders certainly can – rule through command and control, and we have explored multiple leaders in this podcast series who use that strategy. But leaders who lead through example, but more importantly, another topic we have perhaps should revisit, use persuasion, are much more effective. And I understand you can be a leader and uh, you can engage with your uh, staff. You can engage with your employees. You can engage with your uh, constituents. You can set them up to succeed. You can give them the tools to let them blossom. But in studying Johnson, I really got stuck on persuasion, uh, that if he had been able to persuade, uh, he probably could have uh, not put himself in the position where he was going to be impeached. In episode one, you talked about uh, his stubbornness, which he saw as an inner strength, and perhaps because of his class upbringing, it was inevitable he would uh, find feel that way um, in the rarefied air of 1865, Washington, D.C. Um, but um, even if you find yourself in those situations, you have to find a way to work with other stakeholders in a business or other constituents on the political scene. And Johnson couldn't or wouldn't do that. Uh, I've spoken about his alcohol consumption uh, several times. I can't say he was an alcoholic, but I can say he had a drinking problem. And that problem acerbated and exasperated when he assumed the presidency. And some of the works I read in preparation for this podcast said by 10 a.m., he'd already had a cup of cider. And I don't mean uh, grandma grandma's cider, although maybe it was my grandmother's cider. I mean some hard cider. And uh, when you have to have that kind of alcoholic reinforcement to get you through the day, that really um, is masking an underlying character defect. Uh, and when you're the president of the United States whether you have character defects or not, uh, you can't mask them because they only become worse. So, um, and then some at some times over this podcast series, we've laughingly talked about the Peter Principle. I certainly, um, it was one of the seminal business books I read in the 70s. Uh, the Peter, Peter Principle says that uh, you are promoted to your level of incompetency, uh, meaning uh, your last level before your Final promotion is where you're most competent, and that was probably uh, as fine an example with Andrew Johnson. He was a competent federal politician. He was a competent state politician. He was a competent military governor. I don't think any of us would have said he was outstanding or moving towards a statesman role, but he was competent. And when he was promoted to vice presidency, he was no longer competent, and he became incompetent. And this may be one of the best examples I've ever seen of the Peter principles at work. Uh, The results were catastrophic for the United States politically, um, at least for Johnson politically. Uh, The United States seemed to have come out of of it pretty well. But it led to uh, the radical Republicans basically controlling Congress for two full years. And uh, to the extent the South suffered because of that, uh, they did. But uh, the country was able to uh, absorb that and move forward through political change in the 1868 election. So any um, leadership lessons or negative leadership lessons uh, you drew from his time, uh, from his ascension to the vice presidency, Richard?
1: Well, I I think he faced an impossible task. Um, I think... uh Reconstruction was always going to be difficult. It's counterfactual of, of what would have happened if Lincoln had survived, um, you know, remains a fascinating one. But there's no question that Johnson was the wrong man for the job. Um, his stubbornness, um, but I think his stubbornness was also exacerbated by the fact that a lot of people held him in contempt because of his low class upbringing. Um, I think that's certainly true of Thaddeus Stevens and possibly Wade um, and maybe even Mary Todd Lincoln. I'm not sure. But um, he, he reacted to that emotionally I think. And um, and uh, that's just not a good thing as a leader. Um, I think his virulent racism uh, necessarily affects our judgment of him. Um, I don't know that that's presentism or not, but uh, it could be um, one of his biographers says that at the core of his life is the story of class and race in America and how they've shaped the country in ways familiar and unfamiliar and I think that's a pretty good summary. Um, I do think you're correct that he is an excellent example of the of the Peter principle, um, but again i'm not sure anybody was going to ever be able to. To walk the country through Reconstruction, you talked about the lynchings of uh, German pro-Unionists in Texas before the war, but we haven't even talked about the level of racial violence that followed the war. Um, and there was a, a man named Schertz who documented a lot of it and wrote a report for Johnson, which he he just ignored. Um, but I think if you if you look at that backdrop. Um, there really was not much room for uh, rational rapprochement between uh, Johnson's position and that of the Republicans.
0: So, well, Richard, uh, I'm not sure we've ever had this debate, but uh, perhaps we could give a few thoughts on uh, was Johnson our worst president uh, ever? Uh, I'm going to exclude the 45th president from this conversation. If you want to include him, uh, I would certainly welcome your inclusion. But um, I thought uh, before we did this, I clearly thought he was the worst president. After we have done this podcast series, I'm not sure if he, if he's better or worse than James Buchanan. Buchanan was clearly worse for the country because his dithering led almost directly to the civil war. Although to pick up on your last point, we were on a train by that time, a fast moving train wreck and and perhaps no one could have kept the country together. But I was frankly shocked at just how bad Buchanan was. Um, And that has colored a little bit of my views on was Johnson, the worst president, Having said that, uh, doing the research and doing these two shows with you, it's clear he was unsuited for this job at this time, whether it was his constitution, whether it was his drinking, whether it was his education, whether it was his class. It really didn't matter. All of those factors conflated uh, to make him a disaster as a president. So um, I started off this little diatribe about having talked myself into putting Buchanan the worst, but now that I've said all that, I think I've talked myself into agreeing that, that Johnson was the worst, um, not because of the consequences for the country, but for the, the man, the job at that point in time. Uh, I think he, you have to, to say he, he was the worst president.
1: I don't know. Buchanan still got a really strong claim on the, on the position. <laughs> And to a certain extent, well, certainly as a result of my research, I'm far more sympathetic to Johnson, Um, understanding the stresses he was under following uh, Lincoln's assassination. um, I think he may well have had a nervous breakdown and then uh, descended into alcoholism during his term, which disastrous for him, um, not great for the country, but I, I don't think it had the same Poisonous effects that Buchanan's presidency did. Um, I was certain that I put him much above the bottom three or four. Um, but uh, I, I think you're right. He's the wrong man, wrong place, wrong time.
0: So. Well, Richard, this has been a really uh, fun research project and a couple of podcasts. Ah, uh, one thing we didn't mention uh, in the first episode, um, but I'm going to mention now, is we both viewed a DVD from uh, the, the uh, Teaching Company on the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Typically, they provide lectures on various topics, and we have re- researched and uh, referenced those and used those in other podcast series. But this was a dramatic uh, storytelling DVD, a little over an hour. I would I'm going to link to it in the show notes. So I would commend you to uh, reviewing it. It's a great story and really opened my eyes uh, to a lot of the facts we've talked about. So I want to give a, a shout out to uh, the teaching company for the uh, DVD on the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. And frankly, can't see wait to see what we come up with next, Richard.
1: Well, I really enjoyed it as well. And I enjoyed the DVD. So I also recommend it. Um, and it is, it is quite brief, but uh on that note, I guess I uh, can't wait to see if we can find a worse president uh, for, our, for our next few podcasts. Uh, for now, there's Richard Lemons and Tom Fox with 12 O'Clock High signing off.
0: This is Tom Fox again. hope you've enjoyed this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership. I hope you will join us again next time when we take up the rest of Andrew Johnson's life. From his ascension to the vice presidency, his time as military governor of Tennessee, and then moving to the presidency itself, and of course, his impeachment. I'd like to tell you about another exciting new podcast series which premiered on the Compliance Podcast Network, Never the Same How Business Has Been Changed Forever by the Russian Invasion of Ukraine, where together with CEO, of Exeter Brandon Daniels, and I take a deep dive into five reasons we believe business has changed forever. All of these podcasts are available on the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again.